Welcome everyone to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. My name is Finarni Jørgensen. My co-host Dolly Jørgensen is with us, but remotely uh, this week. Uh, and today we have with us then uh, Lawrence Talarak, who is Professor of English at University of Toulouse, uh, Jean Jaurès, and also Associate Researcher at Alexander Corre Center for History of Science and Technology, also in France. She will talk about her new book, Animals, Museum Culture and Children's Literature in 19th Century Britain, Curious Beasties, which came out with Palgrave Macmillan uh, last year. So I'm just going to give the floor over to you. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Here's the book. Um, so in a very short time, 15 minutes, as you can imagine, if you read the title of the book, Curious Beasties um, is a book that looks at the relationship between animals and especially curious animals, and I get to define it um, a little bit further later, and children's literature in, in, in the 19th century. That is at a time when museums proliferated in, in Britain. In fact, the time frame of the book spans the period from around the middle of the 18th century to the end of the Edwardian period, so from around 1750 to 1910. Um, now, if, if many museums, and, and not just natural history museums, opened in the course of the 19th century, the period was also marked by the publication of many natural history titles, which were not necessarily aimed at children, and signs more generally was increasingly and more and more sensationally popularized. What I should always um, also add is that in that time frame, the number of animal species that were known to science rose dramatically. So there was something like 300 animals known uh, to science in the first decades of the 18th century. And by the turn of the 20th century, there was something like a thousand new animals discovered um, each year. In addition to that, it's in the 1790s that the first Australian enigmas, such as the platypuses, which um, you know look like composites, and, and the first koalas, the first wombats, echidnas, arrived in Britain, and, and they were described in the first decades of the decades of the 19th century. And there was, for example, a wombat that appeared in the fifth edition of Thomas Buick's General History of Quadrupeds, that was published in 1807. Uh, Another and the last key date is 1828, which is the opening of the London Zoological Gardens. So all these elements, all this shows how animals must have been central to scientific knowledge, to scientific exploration, to scientific research in general, in scientific progress. Now, with this in mind, when I started working on this project, there was a series of questions that I asked myself. The first one was, how were natural history museum collections presented to juvenile audiences? I'd already worked on how science was popularized in children's books in, in a previous monograph, but I'd never focused on animals or never exclusively focused on animals. And the second question I asked myself was, if children's literature was meant to educate children, I mean, entertain and educate children, then how did museum collections contribute to the shaping of children's knowledge? I, I knew that um, animals had been given a prominent place in children's literature and in, in books for children, and especially since the advent of the market for children's literature. And, and this was a point that was, has been, and will be um, often addressed by children's literature scholarship. But these animals were not necessarily the curious ones. Um, that is, the animals were much more domestic. They were much more familiar. They were animals which were parts of the children's environments, animals with which they could identify, and so on and so forth. 
And, and what I wanted to explore was how the very animals which were at the time the object of scientific discourse or the object of scientific research informed the literature of the period or whether they actually did. And if so, if they did inform it, then considering that um, every new creatures were being daily described and daily classified by naturalists who were desperately trying to fit them into an ex existing taxonomic system, I wondered how first how children's literature dealt with this new ordering of the world and, and whether the, the discourses or the, or the questions or even the controversies prompted by these new, newly discovered or newly exhibited creatures found their way into children's literature. And this especially because many of the creatures that were discovered or that were brought back to Britain increasingly gave shape to or, or validated evolutionary theory. And, and in so doing, it pointed to the issue of extinction. So this, this is the reason why the book tries to examine the discourse surrounding animals, which were in some way or another on display, either in zoological gardens or in museums, and at the same time constructed as scientific specimens. And I, I've studied both fiction and non-fiction aimed at juvenile, juvenile audiences. So these animals could be um, the animals the new animals brought to Britain, and remember this is an era of imperial expansion, um, the animals that were dug out from the past, um, the creatures that were hard to define, the creatures um, that, were, that had become extinct in spite of their size and strength, um, creatures the aspect of which had to be imagined, such as extinct creatures that had to be reconstructed and, and were then exhibited. So all in all, um, creatures that were um, very likely to both entertain and instruct to stimulate wonder while remaining thoroughly anchored in reality. And so the book looks at how children's literature in that time frame, so from the middle of the 18th century to the end of the Edwardian period, used creatures that were hunted, that were collected, that were exhibited, exhibited as emblems of Britain's imperial and, and capitalist systems. Uh, it looks at how children's literature invited children to engage with the material culture of the age. And it tries to see whether children's literature aimed at breeding miniature imperialists or whether on the contrary, it derided, undermined the period, the, the, the period's attempt at mastering the world and, and so laid bare in so doing the ideologies, the colonial or imperial ideologies that informed the practice of natural history. And what I mean by the practice of natural history is in fact all the activities that define 19th century um, natural history. So the hunting of specimens, the buying, selling, exchanging, preserving, classifying, exhibiting, or reconstructing. And so in the book, I have five chapters. Um, the first two ones deal with the exhibition of, of um, creatures, um, living creatures. Um, chapters uh, two and three deal with collections, the making of collections, uh, living collections in chapter two. Um, chapter four, deals with classification and the fifth chapter deals, deals with the reconstruction of extinct species so they're all centered they're all they all re re revolve around the activities of natural history um, in addition to this the chapters follow a generally chronological structure so i start with 18th century georgian children's literature and i i start with fable literature very quickly and then I examine some 18th century moral stories, which at the time offered an insight into the animal mind that was completely in keeping with um, the 18th century um, um, growing consciousness of animal thought. 
And so while I was researching um, um, 18th century children's literature, I discovered that the curious species I was expecting were not that numerous, perhaps because the animals that they used, that pedagogues used, um, often um, served as merely didactic instruments. But I did find some, some exotic ones, and especially in, in John Gay's fables. So it's the early 18th century, which um, um, derided the work of contemporary naturalists. And then I also looked at some of the classics of 18th century uh, children's literature. I, I looked at um, the history of uh, Little Goody Two-Shoes, which contrasts uh, Goody Two-Shoes, uh, Marjorie Meanwell, with her brother, Tom, who is a naturalist, and he goes to Africa with a, with a tame lion. And so he's a hunter. I looked at Sarah Trimmer's Fabulous Histories, or the History of the Robins, published in 1786, which has um, um, a woman who collects uh, exotic pets, and she looks more after her, her pets than after her, her own daughter. I looked at um, Anna Letitia Barbeau's collection of stories, Evenings at Home, collection of texts rather than stories. Um, they were published with her brother uh, between 1792 and, and 96. I also looked at book books published by John Harris, who was the, the, the successor of um, John Newbery, um, et cetera. Perhaps I can talk about these books later on. In my second chapter, I, 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 I shifted, I moved on to the Victorian period and I looked at Victorian menageries and the changing discourses around um, caged creatures. And as I, as, I, as I said before, in 1828, um, the London Zoo opened its gate. It didn't open its gate to the general public. It was not before 1846. But still, one year later, in 1829, there was a first um, guide aimed at children by James Bishop called Henry and Emma's um, visit to the, to, the, to, to the zoological gardens in the Regent's Park. And so I tried to study this um, first guidebook, and I compared it with other popular science books of the period. For example, Jane Loudon's The Young Naturalist's Journey. I also looked in this chapter at ABC books, so um, books that were used to, to teach children how to read, and I tried to see which animals appeared there throughout the various editions. And most importantly, I focused on two mid-Victorian children's periodicals. The first one was Good Words for the Young, and the second one was Aunt Judy's magazine, and I do hope I'll get uh, to speak about these magazines um, later on. So they had um, plenty of various articles. They had um, articles by Victorian travelers. Uh, there was a lot of adventure fiction, and, and they very often featured curious beasties. In my third chapter on uh, collecting, I tried to see how these mid-Victorian children's periodicals, and mo most particularly Aunt Judy's magazine, promoted techniques of collecting and preserving. And, and I wondered whether these could, paradoxically enough, lead to conservation. Now, collecting was essential to the practice of natural history, of course, but it was also essential to the making of science. And there were many, many Victorian pedagogues who invited children to collect the world and to possess it at home. And so they were inviting children to do exactly what, what the grown-ups were doing exactly at the same time. And so in so doing, these children's writers often turned the British Empire into this kind of miniature world that was capable of being easily mastered. In the following chapter uh, on classification, I looked at Victorian nonsense, on, and I hope I'll, I'll, I'll get a chance of explaining why I chose to focus on Edward Lear and, and Lewis Carroll later on. 
Um, Edward Lear's nonsense stories deal sometimes obsessively with children's engagement with exotic creatures. Um, they ride zebras, they purchase exotic species. And so you will find many, many curious beasties that appear time and again. And his, his nonsense reverberates with the uses and abuses of animals, and in particular, exotic animals. And I analyzed uh, more particularly two stories, the history of the seven families of the Lake Pipple Popple, where you get to know the habits and, and history of various animal species that eventually become extinct. And so they, 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 um, they, um, they keep uh, the body parts of animals and they collect them and they exhibit them in a museum so that they may stay there forever. So this may be read as, as a way of denouncing the taxonomic practice of killing animals for specimens. And the other story I focused on is the, the story of the, the, the four little children who went around the world, which is a, a tale of exploration, which parodies travel books, uh, and, and which features children who um, ride a rhino, which is eventually killed and stuffed and mounted. And in the second part of this chapter, I looked at uh, Lewis Carroll's Alice books, which as you all know, I'm sure, um, are replete with curious beasties. There's a rabbit with pink eyes, there's a Cheshire cat, uh, there are hybrids of sorts, mythical creatures, even the queen is um, compared to a wild beast. And in Through the Looking Glass, Alice um, encounters a unicorn who takes her for a fabulous monster. So that, that's for this fourth chapter on um, uh, nonsense, Victorian nonsense. And in the last chapter, I looked at late Victorian or Edwardian fantasies and the reconstruction of extinct species. Now these uh, climaxed with, with the, the Crystal Palace Dinosaur Park, which opened at Sydenham in 1854, and which presented for the first time to the public three-dimensional models of extinct beasts. And so I've tried to trace these models into the literature of the period, and I've used uh, popular science works. So popular science works aimed at children, such as um, um, Browse, The Fairy, Tale of si Fairy Tales of Science, published in 1859. But I've also used Victorian fantasies, such as Tom Hood's From Nowhere to the North Pole, published in 1875. And I close this chapter with a study of um, Edith Nesbitt's fantasy, so it's really the Edwardian period, uh, which um, do use museum culture, do denounce animal commodification, and, and also construct extinct beasties as the victims of colonialism and, and mass consumerism. So I've studied um, The Enchanted Castle, published in, 1700, um, in 1907, sorry. Um, in which you find stone dinosaurs, which directly refer to um, um, the dinosaurs on display at the Crystal Palace. Um, I've looked at the Magic City, published in 1910, in which the, the characters encounter a great sloth, which was once again one of the, of the beasties of the Crystal Palace Park. Um, and then I, I, I focused on the, the um, Samiet trilogy, uh, Five Children and It, The Phoenix and the Carpet, and the story of the amulet, which all play, uh, all revolve around this um, Samiet, this um, uh, prehistoric fairy, which is the last of its species and which is about to, to, to become extinct and does actually eventually become extinct at the end of the trilogy. So this is my, well, uh, it's a tentative conclusion, but um, um, I could say as a conclusion, I, 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 can, I could say that the curious beasties that I was looking for at the beginning were not always where I had expected them to be, and they, they did not necessarily appear in, in children's literature when, at the time, I mean, at the time of publication, I expected them to appear. 
um, I realized that the, the creatures that were, that were used in, in fiction were often used to mold um, responsible and humane British citizens, but certainly not always. And, um, um, and yeah, I also uh, realized that although children's literature was not um, an obvious agent of change itself, it did reflect growing concerns about animal presentation and exploitation. And so it was a good, um, it's a good thing, I think, to, to, to examine children's literature and, 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 um, and look at the history of science through the, the prism of children's literature. So I think this is, this is about it for the 15 minutes. Thank you very much, Lawrence. That was a great um, introduction to your book um, and definitely something I need to read, yeah. uh, working, working in museums and uh, animals myself. Um, and so what I was wondering, we start out uh, thinking about the relationship between mythical beasts and these new, newly discovered beasts. So do you see that, say, a unicorn in, um, you know, Alice's story is somehow different than the way that a platypus might be presented? Or in fact, do they get all lumped together, whether or not they're, they're real, real or mythical? Um, that would be one and the same thing. And, um, and um, mythical creatures were used by paleontologists to define um, the, the, the creatures that they were actually trying to reconstruct and trying to identify and define. Um, so it's one of the, and, and the same thing. And this is why um, in my exploration, if you followed, I, I started with, with moral stories and then I dealt with Victorian realistic stories and then I shifted towards nonsense and I ended up with fantasies. Um, you know, Stephen Prickett says that fantasy is just one way of looking, another way of looking at reality. And this is exactly what I, what I think. Um, um, um when i when i chose um well i didn't select the the the, the authors i dealt with out of the blue uh, when i when i chose um edward lear for example uh that's nonsense uh therefore it's bound to be not realistic at all uh but lear was very close to the developments of natural history of the time he was a zoological illustrator to start with um he had um, trained, he was trained as an apprentice to um, um, Pridosalbi, so he started drawing birds and then he drew um, all the parrots at the London Zoological Gardens until he was um, hired by Lord Stanley, who was the, um, the 13th, the future 13th um, Earl of Derby, who had a menagerie outside Liverpool. Um, and he took um, um, Lear with him to um, make a catalogue of his menagerie. And when we talk about menagerie, we're talking about 300 mammals, over a thousand birds, uh, 25,000 um, um, animals uh, kept in the museum. And he, he, so he worked as an illustrator, he worked in the field of natural history, and then he was in contact with uh, Lord Stanley's children, and he, and he wrote his nonsense stories, his first book of nonsense, published in 1848, for the children. And in, in these nonsense stories, of course, you do get creatures that do not exist at all, creatures that are just made up of composites from um, various species. But the, the discourse that he uh, weaves around this creature is creatures is just the anti-colonial discourse that you could find um, elsewhere. So it's very much, just as much realistic as it is fantastic. Um, it would be the same with myth. I mean, it does have some mythical creatures that appear time and again. 
And it's exactly the same for Carol. Um, everybody knows the, the Alice books and, and the way in which it, it, it intermingles creatures that you could see in museums. The dodo appears in, in um, um, uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Uh, there are other animals that were um, at the center of scientific investigation at the time, pigeons um, and so on and so forth. And there's a unicorn uh, in, in Through the Looking Glass. And Lewis Carroll, um, he was from, from Oxford. He was very close to Henry Ackland, who was professor of anatomy at, at, at Oxford, and who actually was behind the project of the, um, the Natural History Museum in Oxford. And uh, Dodgson, I mean, Lewis Carroll took photographs of some of the specimens that um, Ackland owned and then uh, transferred onto them into the museum. And when, uh, just to, um, to continue on this idea, when, he, when, he, when um, uh, Lewis Carroll chose um, John Tenniel for his illustrations, he wanted somebody um, whom he'd seen illustrating as fables, not necessarily realistic, but yet he wanted him because he knew how much he could, how skillful he was to um, um, delineate animals. And Tenniel, who practiced at the London Zoological Gardens as well, accept, agreed to, to do the job because this would enable him to um, do more animals. And so the, the relationship between the, the text and the image or the illustrations is just as, as significant because the realistic um, um, representation of the animals that Tenniel drew um, you know, collapses any any kind of uh, divide between science and, and myth or science and fantasy. That was a long answer, sorry, but... um. Oh, no, great, great answer. And in fact, uh, where you ended there about illustrations was exactly where I wanted to go now. Of course, you have a lovely illustration as your, as your background. Um, I was wondering about the use of illustrations in these texts, and particularly thinking about um, the magazines that you mentioned. Um, how are those illustrated and um, yeah, what role do the pictures play in communicating um, the relationship of animals and museum in these? I think it's just general stress upon the visual that was um, foregrounded throughout the Victorian period. You had to see education had to be through the senses. And, and this was even behind the project of the Crystal Palace Dinosaur Park, this three-dimensional models of dinosaurs. People had to see things, and therefore the visual was very important to um, children's ed to education in general, but children's education in particular. Um, in, the, in the two um, periodicals I looked at, the illustrations are very realistic, and so they, they, they partake uh, in the lesson um, of natural history. Um, and, and, and I also looked at, um, which was not the case in, in the children's period, the course I, I examined, but I, when, I, when I focused on ABC books, for example, I wanted to see what kind of creatures um, appeared in these ABC books uh, to teach children to, to read. And I realized that the more you moved into the, the, the 19th century, so you, the more you moved into the second half of the 19th century more particularly, and the more the creatures that would appear were those that were exhibited on display in, in menageries or in the London Zoological Gardens and the cages around these creatures appeared more and more, in, the, in the, especially in the last decades of the 19th century. So these, which was not the case in, in the magazines I had in mind, but in, in these ABC books, so for younger children, uh, caging and taming 
and displaying the very creatures that children could see at the zoo as well uh, was very important. And same thing, what I discovered when I, when I um, looked into the texts that were published in these um, um, mid-Victorian periodicals, very different texts, so fiction, non-fiction, popular science articles, and so on and so forth. The writers systematically, even when um, um, they dealt with, they were travelers, so they were, you know, in India, looking at the animals, they were just um, in front of them, they would systematically refer the children to the creatures that they could see around them. So there was this constant invitation uh, for children to go and see with their eyes, empiricism, with their eyes, the creatures that were on display in, in England at the time. So... Um about that, I mean, the animals that are present then in these books, uh, you have talked a fair amount about the, you know, also the new species that appear uh, and, and the interest in those, but are there patterns of animals that no longer show up, that kind of disappear out of the stories you look at? I mean, whether specific animals are going to group of animals or ways of relating to these animals? Um, so, so you mean trends that I could have spotted in, in the type of animals that we represented? Yeah. Um, well, as I said, as I said in my introduction, I, I thought I would encounter many more curious beasts in Georgian children's literature, for example, because it's exactly, um, you know, the, 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 the classic writers of 18th century um, 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 children's stories published in the 1790s, exactly at the time when all these fast, these, these curious beasties started to be imported into England. They didn't appear in, in the texts I studied or very, very, I mean, no, there was no platypus. Um, the ones that appeared were animals such as bears, such as um, apes, all types of apes, um, parrots, in fact, creatures that people had owned, wealthy people had owned for a long time, not the ones that were central to scientific investigation. Um, I think I, I didn't I didn't spot wombats or, or apart from um, Buick's title, wombats or platypuses or koalas before the second half of the 19th century. Um, and from the moment then, from the moment when, when the London Zoo opened its gate and started popularizing the type of animals that were uh, there, and I, as I said before, the, um, um, the London Zoo opened its gate to the, to the general public in 1846, but before that there were many stories that were published to promote the type of animals that they, were, that they kept. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's from that moment onwards and in the following decades that uh, some of the animals that were kept there, you know, not, not just lions and, and, um, and giraffes, but some of the, the other animals that were kept there or some of the animals that were for sale in the, uh, in, in the London menageries, wombats is a good example, that started to appear in children's fiction. I have Rossetti in mind because he owned many, many curious beasties among them, uh, wombats. Um, um, so I, I, I could not give you trends. Um, it's just that in the second half of the 19th century, then yes, we do have them. We do find them um, seldom before, or it's more rare. So uh, Verity had a, a comment and question and, and noted first that she can't wait to read your latest monograph because all her favorite topics, and I know Verity well, uh, rolled up into one. So um, Hi, making, making a point about, you know, 
uh, Carol's uh, illustrations or the illustrations that are in Alice in Wonderland and his inclusion of the dodo. Now those illustrations are used in the Oxford University Museum with their dodo. So, so not only does the dodo affect his literature, but his literature affects the dodo. Uh, and so she was wondering about that relationship then, the relationship between the museum narrative uh, and the children's literature narrative, uh, you know, which direction, I guess, might be interesting to think about which direction do they go? Um, so do you, do you see children's literature picking up the same kind of narrative um, as was shown in the museum, and then they they repeat that, or do they go in kind of other directions than what a museum was doing? It's yeah, um, it's a two-way traffic. Yes, of course, it's a two-way traffic. Uh, yeah, there is not just one answer. It, it goes both ways. Um, <laughs> uh, it goes both ways. And I've encountered, to be more precise, I mean. I could say, of course, you know, um, science has been influenced by literature and literature does influence science. The, it's an endless um, discussion. Um, but in, in, the, in the, especially the popular science uh, books I've explored or the guides I have looked at, um, some of the writers try to read in the display of museums. They try to construct a narrative around the, the museum displays, even though sometimes you know you you, you put um, specimens side by side because you have no other choice and because the rooms are not big enough and so on and so forth. But they try to weave a narrative to to make up a narrative around these um, 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 specimens in order to match their idea. And I have something around natural theology. Um, in mind here, uh, that she would use to teach the children. She would use the fact that there was little storage room, a little place in the room um, to, to say exactly what she wanted to say and using, using the objects on display uh, for her own service. Um, uh, I think, I'm, I'm not an expert at the history of museology and the way in which um, um, the objects on display um, were carefully um, exhibited in order to, in order for the public to you know to 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 get the story whilst walking um, through the galleries. Um, so perhaps somebody else can um, can um, help here. Um, yeah, so I, I wouldn't be able to to answer correctly, I think. But but I've seen it the other way around. I've seen um, these children's writers make up stories around the museum objects. And Magna had a question about um, the degree or the form of anthropomorphism. Um, so how much do these animals end up behaving and being portrayed as people versus as animals? And of course, the illustration in your background is a snail that's being, if you will, a horse. Um, so maybe they're, they're being other animals than themselves, um, as well as potentially being like people. Um, um, you know, even without looking exclusively at children's literature, if you look at some of the um, taxidermic um, displays in Victorian England, such as plukets, um, 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 stuffed animals, or water potter, uh, water potters, um, anthropomorphized animals as well, you could see that this was very fashionable in the Victorian period. Um, as to um, anthropomorphized 
anthropomorphized animals in children's literature, I could find just as many anthropomorphized animals um, look at Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and look at the illustrations. They're, they're very realistic and at the same time, they're dressed up like um, human beings. And I could also find um, animals which were just um, um, scientifically described as animals and there was no attempt whatsoever to anthropomorphize animals. Um, yeah, I, I found because I worked most um, um, mostly on, on, on two very important children's periodicals, I found a diversity of texts, a diversity of representations, a diversity of animals that you can hardly imagine. Um, so it's very hard to have one single answer um, to the question. Um, it, it, it does depend on the writer. It does depend on the type of article as well. Um, in, um, in a magazine such as Andrew magazine, there was a stress upon verisimilitude uh, realism. Of course, I don't know if you know about Andrew magazine, but it was uh, launched by Margaret Getty, who was, um, she was an amateur. I don't like saying amateur, but she was a naturalist. She was, um, she had a passion for marine biology and, and she, um, she was a collector. Uh, she was in contact with um, several um, naturalists. One was um, uh, to become a professor of botany at Trinity, at, at Trinity College Dublin, uh, for example. And she, um, um, she used her magazine. Okay, she popularized her knowledge through her stories, the fiction. She popularized her knowledge about um, natural history through her um, popular science articles. But she also used her magazine to get more collections, to, to, to develop her own collections. And it's the same thing for her daughters. She had two daughters. One is famous because she was a famous children's writer, Juliana Horace Ewing. So she wrote uh, children's stories and she contributed many, many stories to the magazine. And she had a passion for botany. And the, the other daughter, um, um, uh, Horatia Francis Catherine uh, Gatti, had, a, just like her mother, a passion for marine biology. She, um, she um, specialized in hydroids. And she, same thing, she was in contact with um, several scientists um, at the time. So she corresponded with them. She got collections. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that she used, they, they all used the magazine as a hub. And you can see this because I, I studied the, uh, the correspondence section and I tried to see who was um, collecting what and, and how um, the editors and the readers were just exchanging specimens in between themselves and, and um, between the editor and, and, um, and the readers in order to um, uh, make their collections grow. And they did contribute to science. I mean, they had no entry at the time. Women had very little entry um, into scientific institutions, universities or, or um, uh, societies. So that was a good means of um, contributing to science. Thank you very much, uh, Lawrence. Definitely an interesting book uh, I would like to check out. I was wondering whether you also in your book reflect on how children themselves are depicted among the animals. And I'm thinking, for example, with Alice, we have a, a child already that is, works like a proxy, you know, you carries a child into a realm of fantastic animals. While on the other hand, with the fables, maybe the human body is kind of projected into the animal. So I, I was wondering if you reflect upon how they situate the child differently in their narratives. Um, once again, I'm going to, to give you different um, answers. 
the, um, the interactions between children and animals varied according to the material I studied. If I looked at guides, um, um, museum guides, or um, guides to the zoological gardens, for example, um, the interactions with the animals were encouraged, but uh, children had to be careful because they could be bitten and so on and so forth. But still the connection with the animals um, were encouraged. It was a, a means of having the child, taking the children to, to the zoo. In the children's magazine, um, I examined, um, uh, it depends on the gendering, in fact. Um, when you look at the way in which girls were encouraged to um, interact with animals, um, I think many writers um, promoted maternal devotion, sympathy and empathy, and, and you can trace this back to the 18th century, of course, all this genealogy of women writers training girls to develop the maternal instincts. With a few exceptions, though, because Margaret Getty didn't like petting animals, she still had this utilitarian view of, of animals. And so this is for, for girls within certain limits, of course, and, and con concerning boys, I, I can say a bit more about the gendering of the magazines, but uh, concerning boys, then the contact with the, the animal, especially when, when knowledge around the animal was at stake, the contact could be much more brutal. Um, you know, it's uh, John Miller who says that the, the, the scientific specimen is at the nexus of knowledge, science, uh, knowledge, sorry, violence and, and power. And you could really see this in some of the adventures that were presented to children or some of the descriptions of the animals, which, um, which were informed by some form of violence. That is, you had to capture, you had to master, you had to tame the animal in order to understand um, the animal in question. Um, did that answer your question? Uh, yes, thank you, kind of. I was also wondering whether the child uh, itself is somehow being represented as an animal among others versus like uh, stewards over the animals. Yeah. Yes, of course. Um, although in realistic fiction or in, in, in text, more likely to be realistic, the, the boundary between the human and the animal is, um, is stressed. Uh, there's still this hierarchy, the superiority of the human, even though you, can, you have to, to care for, for the animal, you have to look after it, you're still um, um, superior to the animal. And so this sort of um, um, paternalist view of the animal. Uh, in the fantasies and in, in nonsense uh, literature, of course, uh, the proximity between humans and animals um, is stressed, very much emphasized, um, and, and yeah, um, and the child is but um, uh, an animal that needs to be trained as well, that may, needs to be educated in order to become a human. Uh, well, thinking about that educational aspect, I guess, gets to Isabel had a question in the chat about uh, imperial values. So you mentioned that much of this literature then is some is embedded in uh, Victorian in imperialism or the imperialism of the of the uh, 19th century in general. Um, and so she was wondering if you could say more about um, those kind of imperial values and, you know, were there changes over those or are there particular parts of those values that show up? Um, it, 
it, it's particularly obvious in the second half of the 19th century. You can see new, you can see trends appearing uh, at the turn of the 19th century, and then um, from the 1860s onwards, uh, colonial ideology and imperial ideology, whether um, both in fiction or non-fiction aimed at girls and boys, is really emphasized. Um, you need to master the world and you need to, to, in order to master knowledge, you need to master the world. In order to, to master the world, you need to min min uh, make it as small as possible so as to be able to, to, um, to, to keep it with you. And um, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's particularly striking and it um, rises in the last decades of the 19th century, even though paradoxically enough, it is the moment when you get these animal biographies and, 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 sh and shifting attitudes towards animals um, at the time, uh, but it's still there. And this, is, this, is, this was one of my questions. How can you, how can you um, promote this imperial colonial ideology whilst at the same time leave some room for animal protection? Um, and 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 it, it does work actually. It's because um, um, they reinforced um, the British Empire in many of the publications involving curious animals that there was this possibility uh, for some species to be protected. I think. Well, this is what I find in some of the texts that I, I studied. So I was wondering a bit about the relationship in between animals in literature and animals in the museums and the locations or ecosystems from which they come. I mean, because we know in museums, sometimes specimens can be placed in dioramas that, you know, may or may not accurately represent their, their place of origin, you know, the place where they belong. Uh, but most often they're not. They're just, you know, the animal in itself completely cut off then from its, its place. So do you see examples of this being uh, brought back then in the literature? Are the animals typically put in their place or are they in the place of children or others instead? Um, well, the dioramas appeared in, in natural history museums at the turn of the 20th century. So it's only at that time that they started uh, placing the animals within their own environment or environments that looked like the animal's environment. Having said this, if you look at Buick's um, uh, books for children, popular science books and books for children, Buick is very significant to the history of children's literature and to, to the history of the popularization of science. Um, he was, he, he did work on, on um, museum specimens, and when he does describe um, animals, birds in, in, in particular, he explains systematically that this specimen was shot, blah, 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 and, and, and is on display at such and such a museum. And yet, in the illustrations that he um, added to his text, he started drawing a background to the animals. This is a popular science example. If you look at Tenniel's illustrations in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, there is some background. So the animals are in, con not all the animals, but the, the rabbit at the beginning, um, the animals are placed in context in, in a meadow. So that really looks like the, the natural environment of the animal. Uh, so yes, uh, whether um, the, this type of children's literature contributed to anchoring the animal within a natural environment is, is another story, but um, um, it is, it's just possible.
So I was wondering then about this collecting um, process. So in uh, particularly thinking about these magazines and encouraging kids to make collections, I assume basically, you know, be a leopardoc leopardologist is that right no leopard okay anyway yeah to collect, collect your butterflies <laughs> right um so go out collect butterflies go out and, and you know collect insects in particular perhaps oology so collect bird uh you know eggs um were they doing this in any way thinking about the making they're making little citizen scientists right so they're making little scientists who are collecting this this data was it you know to improve their scientific thinking or them as a person you know is there some kind of value uh that they're ascribing to these kind of practices um well this is what i said i mean the, the, the um practicing natural history and so collecting was one of the activities involved in the practice of natural history um, was synonymous with the making of science you could not make science without practicing natural history um, to talk about Angelis magazine again they did encourage the making of collections but they did encourage as well the making of responsible collections so, so they would not promote the collection of, of some species, I mean, collecting eggs, for example, and bird nesting. It's been, a, it's been a, a cliche of children's literature, you know, the, the buddies will go and collect birds, uh, uh, eggs, uh, and, and therefore kill um, uh, uh, birds. So they would, they would encourage this kind of reasonable um, collection of species that would not impact um, um, uh, not kill too much, in fact. So you would have to select uh, special uh, species in order to damage too much the natural world. But still, it was about collecting the world. So there was a question in the chat um, about the prehistoric creatures. So you mentioned the, the Crystal Palace uh, dinosaurs and you know, sort of the, the end of your story and that kind of reanimation, uh, reconstruction of those. Uh, so does that... I guess, change uh, the, the narrative when you have these uh, depictions of these ancient creatures uh, that no longer exist, that you can't have the actual thing in a museum, but instead you have this kind of model. So does the, the fantasy associated with, with dinosaurs and other ancient creatures, does it change over your time period you know, do we find different ways of, of talking about the science and the fantasy um, of something that, that you can't put in a museum in the same way? Uh, no, on the contrary. Um, if, I, if I understand the question well, um, did, it, did it decrease? I mean, um, as, as knowledge about these dinosaurs increased, did that type of representation decrease? No, on the contrary, science had to be sensational, especially in the second half of the 19th century. So science had really to be sensational, even if uh, this would imply scientific inaccuracy. Definitely. So the dragons would be more likely to appear in the last decades of the 19th century. And this is actually what, um, if, if you look at Nesbitt's Book of Dragons, she constructs, it's a book of dragons. Okay, so dragons, mythical creatures, but she does construct them as, as scientific specimens. And it tells you a lot about the way in which these scientific specimens, so the reconstructed creatures, were seen, understood, represented, illustrated as uh, as mythical, as uh, fantastic, as threatening, even more threatening um, creatures deliberately 
quickly. Yes. You had to be moved by what you could see. Yeah. So um, you mentioned about evolution. So how did um, you know evolutionary theory, Darwin's theory, play into these illustrations and, and you know, use in, in children's literature of these animals? You mean illustrations or, or in general? I, I was thinking in general. In general. Um, I mean, yeah, that, that, that how did they deal with the fact that it was controversial, I guess, is, is Verity's question, um, that not everybody uh, believed in evolution. So did they, you know, do you see in the literature that they tended to adopt it uncritically um, or, or were there kind of questions raised about it? Well, you know, the most significant example, um, but I, I, I suppose everybody knows it, is, is Charles Kingsley's The Water Babies. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that um, this was a text that really influenced Alice's uh, adventures in Wonderland. In, in The Water Babies, Kingsley was, a, uh, he was a, a churchman, but still he promoted, he advocated evolutionary theory, and he popularized it in his children's um, um, fiction, texts and fiction. In, in The Water Babies, um, um, he, he does talk about the threat of extinction. He does talk about evolution. Um, okay, so this is grounded in science. Um, and, and if you compare the water babies, the fantasy to his other writings that you understand that he's actually promoting, advocating evolutionary theory. Yet in the fantasy, um, the, the lesson around evolution uh, I have the great orc story in mind, this bird who refuses to, is too haughty and he refuses to, to evolve and therefore because he refuses to adapt, then he's bound to become extinct. This serves a didactic purpose. Um, so, so yes, this is about science, but still um, the lesson for, for the child is eventually didactic. It's the same thing in, in um in a in a guide, I think it's a it's a guidebook in which there's a lady who is telling the children. Um, she's pointing to um, different objects, and she points to. Uh, oh no, it's a, it's a menagerie. Sorry, they're, they're living animals, and she points to the kangaroo, and she says that you know the can the, the 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 kangaroo is doomed to become extinct, exactly like the dodo. So she compares it to the dodo because of his um, uh, refusal to become tamed, and this is. There's a child who's taken to the to these menageries, and of course, the taming of the animals has something to do with the, the education of the child who is wild and has to be um, um, turned into civilized young British children. But same thing, she used this the possibility of extinction to explain that this creature who refuses to be tamed is doomed to become extinct, and that's a lesson for the child to um, to to become a civilized British um, citizen. Hi, Lawrence. Thanks so much for this really interesting talk. Um, I'm just wondering whether there were any animals in particular that came out as having a really, really strong symbolic quality over the timeline of the literature that you studied. Um, I'm looking at the illustration behind you and the butterflies, and I'm a fan of Virginia Woolf. And although she wrote adult fiction in her early, which was Victorian work, there's a lot of like, flashes of colour and temporalities of these flickers and butterflies and then afterwards um, pinning them down into taxonomies which which sort of represents I think this like really painful <laughs> um, correlation between the animal the insect experience and the human I was just wondering whether there was any of that 
um, profundity coming out and how it might emerge in children's literature. <laughs> so, so, so you want me to give you a few emblematic animals that would, um, I think um, if I were to do that, I would, um, I would be the one to choose myself. I mean, you know, today we tend to see, we tend to associate um, uh, Lewis Carroll with a dodo more than any other animals. Well, it may not have been the case. I mean, he may not have been that um, emblematic um, animal. Um, if it's the last question, it's a tricky one because I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm, I'm just trying to think. Um, uh, come up with one one particular. Um, well, do you have any? Do you have any favorites? Like after reading all this kids' literature, um, did you kind of think, oh, that that portrayal of that animal is yeah is to yourself a, a good emblem? Whether or not they meant it, then I mean, might be a, another way to think of it. But then there would be a Kingsley's Great Orb then, because um, I would have loved to say a platypus or a koala, but uh, but they were still seen as wild animals and um, too much of an enigma to to become an emblem of something else. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> sorry to disappoint you. Um, yeah, I would say the Great Orc because it became extinct during the Victorian period. So that's a good example. Um, they witness its extinction. That's a good one. That's nice, thank you. Okay, um, yeah, one more question. Uh, get uh, Gita up here to switch. Go ahead, Gita. Okay, the sound is mm -hmm. on. Yeah, thank you so much for this, uh, this talk. Uh, one thing that I just got to think about was this, you mentioned like education and entertainment. And I guess that's been one of the, the big, big hurdles in natural history museums as well, that sometimes the entertainment on, on, on the expense of the education. And do you see that the same conflict uh, in, in children's literature when they represent uh, the animals? Um, once again, it will depend on, on whom we're talking about. Um, there's a, when, when Margaret Gatsby reviewed um, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. She says, "Oh yes, there's 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 a lot about natural history, but um, but you you're not to expect any kind of science in that fantasy." Um, so even though she she did promote the the, the mingling of education and entertainment, uh, she was quite wary about um, providing lessons for children and then entertaining them and splitting them into two different um, areas. It's the same for. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going backwards. If you look at Buick's um, popular science works, um, the, um, the text itself is about science. It's just, you know, defining, presenting, classifying species and, and explaining to uh, juvenile audiences what they look like. And you understand what is meant to entertain children if you look at the little, uh, the, the, the little vignettes that they added here and there, comic scenes, that are, that are meant to, to um, uh, entertain children. And so there is, there is no um, intermingling of these two areas. Well, I'm, I've said this, but uh, then I can find examples of just um, you know, the opposite and, and complete intermingling of, of entertainment and, and, um, and instruction. 
All right. So we are approaching the end of our time. So I thought I'd just uh, thank you for uh, coming to talk about your book. So we had with us Lawrence uh, Talarak, uh, who talked about her book, Animals, Museum, Culture and Children's Literature in 19th Century Britain, Curious Beasties, out now with Palgrave uh, Macmillan. So thank you. And thank you to everyone in the audience as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you.